Good morning, church. We're going to go into a scripture reading this morning, and we have three passages in Luke from chapter 8, chapter 17, and chapter 18. Um, So if you want to uh, use the pew Bibles in front of you, they are there, and uh, you can find Luke chapter 8 on page 1576. We're going to start Luke chapter 8, verses 43 through 48. I know it says 7 on the slide, but in fact it is chapter 8. Luke 8, 43 through 48. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him, Jesus, and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. And now turn to Luke chapter 17, verses 12 through 19. As he, Jesus, was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. And when he saw them, he said, Go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. And finally, you can turn to chapter 18, verses 35 through 43. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside, begging, When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. So he called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. Amen.
just want to dance, but you're supposed to read the things and be moved by them. Um, this is the last week of our series on the image of God, what it means to be made in God's image, in his image and likeness, and that it's like, it's a weight to be made a human being, and it's an incredible wonder. Uh, today, I'm going to talk for the last week about healing. Last week and this week were the two kind of operational ones where um, I said last week, I think there's two main ways as human beings in the culture that we live in, even as Christians, we incredibly sell ourselves short in terms of what God has made us for and wants to do in us. And the first last week I argued was capacity, that we, we just don't really think of ourselves as people capable of being like the holy God, even though he explicitly tells us that's why he made us, and that is the work of his redemption in us. Right? He says that we are made in his likeness in numerous places. He calls us in Leviticus. He says, be holy because I am holy, as though it's something can be done. He reiterates in Deuteronomy. He's like, this thing I'm telling you to do, including be holy because I'm holy, isn't too hard for you. You actually can do it. Right? In First Peter, he says, just as everything he, that is the Father, does is holy, so be holy in all you do. In Second Peter, he says, God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. So everything we need to pursue and experience godliness, we've been given in Christ. And Jesus said in Matthew, at the tales of his statement to love our enemies, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, right? We have an incredible capacity, um, but one of the things that we deal with is the fact that we don't seem to be able to do it. The whole story of the Old Testament is a story of human failure. God has to reiterate over and over that, 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 that the human capacity exists. Otherwise, you might think it just doesn't, you know? And then we often look at ourselves or people in our lives, and we think, okay, I, I just don't know if people really can change, whether healing is really possible. What, what, I, what I see is, as the main, one of the main markers of human existence is failure or weakness. And especially in what God calls godliness. We do bad enough in school, right? But living out what it would mean to be truly righteous or just in all our actions, to be actually loving from the heart in self-sacrificial love, in uncalculated giving and gracious receiving, like that— we're, we're especially bad at and prove it over and over again, right? Um, <clears throat> part of the reason for that is Scripture is very clear that we exist in a world that exists under the curse, like since the fall, right? And that is that, um, you know, sin has been a snicker word for at least 40 years, but it's just because we keep, like, destroying its definition, right? To use modern secular parlance, sin would be something like this, a cycle of perpetration and victimization among the human race that traumatizes, creates anomia, which is um, a demoralization, right? Like, we, we don't believe there really is a law, and so we just act like there's nothing governing us, and so because we're not governed by that law, we hurt people freely because we don't believe we have a shared responsibility. Alienation, we're, we're driven away from each other. There's a, a profound and corporate loss of intimacy and degradation. We don't actually become what we can be in ignorance and want. If you remember, like, uh, the uh, Ghost of Christmas Presents little skirt he opens up with the two kids' ignorance and want. Like, when people are degraded sufficiently in ignorance and want, they're in, in poverty and in inability to develop, right, what ends up happening is, is that the, um, they just, they don't, they don't grow in the, in the cognitive capacity to live in what it means to be the image of God, right? And, um, Generally speaking, what that leads to is a tragic and endemic reality of sin. Tragic in the sense, what, what does tragedy mean? Well, in like a Greek tragedy, a, a tragic flaw was one that eventually caught up with the hero and destroyed everything good. 
a tragic element in human society is something that in spite of everything we try, everything we do, it's going to catch up with us and it's going to destroy all the good, right? And endemic, it's like COVID, right? Like Australia tried to get rid of it, right? They were like, okay, no, we have an island, right? They're like, nobody gets on this island with that disease, right? Yeah, sorry, buddy. Like it, we, like, they, I mean, God bless them. But it was, a, we find out it was a fool's errand, right? And, and like, so COVID is like endemic. Like it's going to be here. Like maybe someday we come up with a like perfect cure, but probably not, okay? And so it's just there perpetually. You can't get rid of it. You're just constantly living with it. And in some ways, that's what, that's what suffering is like. That's what our, our spiritual weakness is like. That's what the curse is like. And what that tends to lead to in terms of our belief that God can heal, that he can do amazing things, is fear of what people are going to do to us and that, he's, and that we're never going to change and that this is never going to happen, which then leads to, when it comes to its fruit, <laughs> despair, where we give up. Right? I talked to somebody this week who had this incredible breakthrough in terms of healing with her family, and she said, she said, I've been praying this for, for 10 years, and Philippians 1, 6 is the only thing that kind of got me through, and probably the only thing that got me through the next 10 years, where God says that the thing I started, right, he said, um, Paul says, I pray with you, because I'm confident of this, that the, he, that is God, who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And he says the next verse, and I, I believe that for all of us because you're in my heart, and I believe that we all share in the grace or the generosity of God together. And because of that, I have faith, even in the midst of the fear and the despair that we create, because sin is tragic and endemic, and it does all these terrible things. That's the curse is a terrible thing. Because, like, listen, I believe that God, because of his generosity, heals. Right? Now, um, Therefore, we have to face the fact that when we in the church talk about healing, usually we are saying words we don't believe, okay? And we shouldn't do that. You shouldn't say words you don't believe because it does something to you that's not good. You understand? Instead, we need to realize, we need to realize to what extent we do or do not believe what we say we theologically believe. And we need to realize, well, why don't we? Why don't we believe that what we hold in the Christian faith that we've, that's been given to us in Christ, that's a deposit of his spirit, that is a declaration of God, that it is really incredibly powerful. And if we don't see it like we really think we would, why is that? Because one of the things we find in Scripture over and over and over again is that when people believe in God and they don't seem to experience the power of God or what God promised, what ends up happening is they find out either A, they have fallen into idolatry, they're worshiping a God that doesn't exist, and God doesn't honor that. Or secondly, they've corrupted what God has actually told them to do, right? They're like, well, we're obeying God, and then God comes through a prophet and says, no, you're not. You're not doing anything like what I told you to do. That's why you're not experiencing what I promised. And we have to realize that that's pretty common for human beings. Now, in Scripture, especially in the New Testament, we, we're given a number of reasons why if we're not experiencing the transformation, especially in healing, that God promises, why that might be, right? Like, one is, is that we're just a novice. Like, we're still kind of in ignorance and foolishness, and we don't—we haven't learned. And so we, we don't have the truth or wisdom yet to apply, and so we still do some stupid stuff, and we don't know why it's happening because we're a beginner. That's why it says that no matter how competent a man or woman seems to be, it says in 1 Timothy 3, a novice should not be an elder. Just they need time to ripen. And, and if that's the problem, 
time and learning and discipleship will heal that, right? The second is false faith. There's, it's possible that we don't experience things because we don't really believe in Jesus, right? And that's something you can only ask yourself in a way. The second is something that I covered in the book Substance when we have conflicting faiths. We have two gods. We believe in Jesus, but we also believe in worldliness or the God of this world, mammon, so much that there is an inter-competition between the two and healing can't really take place, right? But the fourth— and obviously this list could probably be longer, but here we are, is infirmity. That is, that, that is somebody who's infirm is somebody like still laying in a hospital bed, right? They have a sickness or an illness that seems to stay with them, right? They haven't just received a hurt, but a harm. It remains with them. It's a, it's a, it's a wound that doesn't seem to heal. It's a wound that won't become a scar, right? There's this rule in preaching, right? Preach scars, not wounds, Right? Preach stuff that hurt you, that you went through, that you got through, that God has healed you from, and then explain it to people. Don't preach wounds. If you're like in the middle of your brokenness and the thing, you don't need to share that, right? There's a lot of sermon material that I can't share yet, <laughs> right? But sometimes it's that we have a durable wound, and in order for us to move forward in God, what, what we have to experience is we have to try to move forward in God, experience the frustration of being stuck, and then turn to God as to why that is, and then find out that we have to take a healing path rather than what we might think is the direct path. But here's the thing. There are no direct paths to the throne of glory. Every one of us is on a circuitous, annoying, seemingly in the opposite direction path if we are on the faithful path of God's healing. If you think you are marching straight towards the golden gates, and you're like, this is fantastic. I'm doing great. Beware. Beware you're probably lost in legalism or idolatry. Okay. So, to try to put something overarching over this, I'd say something like this. God leads his pursuers into his paths of healing. God leads his pursuers, right? God, God's promise to us is always predicated on if you seek me with all of your heart. You will seek me and you'll find me if you seek me with all of your heart. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and everything will be added to you, right? That, that, that if, if, we're, if we want that, if we're pursuing God, then whatever we believe wrong about God, he can correct. And wherever we get stuck and frustrated, we'll keep pressing in and through until we figure it out because we've chosen one thing, right? Our heart is pure about it. And one of the things we need to recognize as we do this and as we begin to find God's paths of healings, what we find is, is that God's paths of healings were not so hidden. They were just hard. And the reason they seemed hidden to us is because when we looked at them, we're like, that's really hard. I don't want to do that. And we look at something else. We all want the fruit of healing, and, and we don't want the path of healing. But they go together. They go together. So I'm going to say three things because that's what preachers do. The first is, is that I want you to understand that salvation, that is the whole picture of God's divine work of salvation for humanity and creation, is a healing. I, I think it's important in a church like ours because oftentimes we think of salvation primarily as a legal transaction, right? Which is true. It is that, right? That is, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Christ died and interposed himself for the penalty of our sin by receiving him as our Savior, by believing in him and in his act on our behalf. We can be forgiven and pardoned before God and be in a state of innocence so that we can be with God that is in his country and in his heaven, right? That's true. It's true. That's like getting admitted into the hospital of salvation. 
Do you understand? <clears throat> it's like giving up your gun at the door so you can come in the hospital. It's, it's an incredibly important part of salvation. It's absolutely necessary. It is part of the beginning of the healing process, too, because to, in order to be saved legally in that sense, you have to repent and admit you are wrong and believe God. And that beginning to be honest with God and with yourself that comes from justification is the first step of healing, right? Even though it's also the step of justification, of forgiveness. It's also the first and most important act of healing. What's the most important act of healing? That the human soul be reunited to the person of God, which is a healing and also the means of healing. Even when we think of it in the most legal sense, which is a truthful way to think about it, the book of Romans is correct. It is only a part of the larger picture. And if I had to choose theologically, based on the Bible, whether to pick salvation is a legal transaction or, there isn't an or, but for, for argument's sake, or it is a healing, I would pick it's a healing. If I had to pick between, is it a legal transaction or is it a liberation of freedom? I'd pick it's a liberation or a freedom. And listen, I will be martyred for the legal justifying transaction of the work of Christ to forgive us. I'll be martyred for Romans 3. But I'll also be damned, I mean that literally, should I pretend that's the gospel? It is a beautiful part of the whole of the gospel, which is a healing. Because the gospel in the end is what? A glorification. Right. Now, uh, I read every passage in the New Testament on healing this week. You know it's only like mentioned twice in all of the epistles? It's just not discussed. In the letters, all these occasional letters, the apostles write to the churches. And James, James, just go, look, if people are sick, they should go to the elders, get prayed for, they'll be healed. That's it. And done. James dismounts, right? The apostle Paul, of all the letters that he writes, in, in, um, in 1 Corinthians 12, right, he talks about healing as a gift. He's like, listen, the Holy Spirit gives gifts. One of them is healing. It's just matter-of-factly. Yeah, God heals people. It's fantastic. That's it for all of the epistles. Right? And you're like, well, in Acts, is it? Yes, you're right. In Acts, the apostles, they heal people. And sometimes a number of people. That's fantastic, right? But the vast majority are in the four Gospels. Okay? They're all directly connected to Jesus. And there's a number of—and we don't hear about all of Jesus' miracles by a long shot. There's a number of places where it just says, and then Jesus just healed everybody. Right? That's not meant to be theologically significant other than that Jesus can heal everybody, which he's the Christ. Right? So the question then is, is that why do we hear about the ones we hear about? Right? Why do we hear, why those particular ones? Okay, those are all the weird ones. Okay, we hear about all the weird ones. And the reason we hear about all the weird, weird ones is because Jesus in that case is doing more than just healing. He is teaching something. Right? Sometimes people are like, Nick, why, why are all the things, did nobody get back pain healed in the Bible? Like, whenever I go to like a place, like a healing service, it's like two-thirds of the people get healed of back pain. Right? And you're like, I always think like, that's cheap. Like, nobody can verify that. But you're also like, probably two-thirds of human pain is back pain, right? Like, I mean, come on, like, all right. I mean, God has compassion. Healing's about compassion partly, right? But part of what's happening is you see people who are disabled be healed. People who are blind or deaf being healed. People who are demonized being healed, right? And what the gospel writers are trying to show us is, is that he's saying, look, um, these are all metaphors for salvation. They're all metaphors for salvation and damnation, actually. Now, because sometimes people say, well, okay, Nick, there is psychological healing in the New Testament, 
because demonization is just a primitive understanding for things like schizophrenia and bipolar disorders and so on. And so, you know, Jesus healed mental illness, right? That's probably true. In those passages where it says that he healed everybody, I don't have any doubt that some of the people that came were suffering from profound mental illness and healed them. No question. When the New Testament writers say demon, they don't mean mental illness. Okay, can we just be clear on that? That's not what they mean. Okay? I know we, we want to think that they're these sad, primitive people that don't, can't tell the difference between mental illness and demonization. And maybe in some cases, but they might say about us that we're so sophisticated, we can't tell the difference between me- mental illness and demonization either. You know? And there's no reason to believe that mental illness and demonization in certain cases aren't invo- co-involved. Right? Demonization is always co-involved with our humanity. Right? Whether it's our pride, our sin, our false beliefs, or ways in which we either have perpetrated on ourselves what becomes mental illness, like chronic anxiety from our chronic worry or something like that, or physiological things that we go along with in ways maybe we shouldn't, right? The point is this, is that if we look at all of these different healings, there's certain things that emerge. One is, is that they're a demonstration of God's compassion. But it's clear that they're not only a demonstration of God's compassion, or just everybody would be healed, always. And that's not the case. Healing is referred to as other miracles, as the first fruits of the kingdom of God, right? Which are fairly liberally dispersed. But they are also not the kingdom of God, in which every, every tear will be wiped away, every disease healed, every sickness put to rest. Does that make sense? Right? Secondly, one of the things that we find out, it's one of the saddest things about divine healing, is that um, it's often— In fact, in the Gospels, it is usually ineffectual for producing salvation, which is the priority for Jesus. Right? I can think of somebody right now who I've pastored who had a debilitating physical condition, was physically healed by God at this church, right over there, instantly. They repented of a particular sin of unforgiveness, which they'd been harboring for decades. At that same time, God touched them, completely healed them, so that that person was no longer dependent on their spouse, dependent on people to take care of them, and then use that freedom to leave that person's family and to pursue a road of perdition, which is incredibly sad. Okay. Um, Healing does not produce salvation. And in the Bible, one of the saddest things is that Jesus does all of these miracles and the amount of people for whom it produces Faith in him unto salvation, repentance and faith, to God for a new heart and a new life of righteous submission, glorying in our ability to serve him as his sons and daughters. That salvation is effectuated so rarely that Jesus laments it. And so, listen, I know we think that if, like, just the power of God just dropped on four or five of us, we could just heal everybody— the people would come to Jesus like, you have no idea. And no, they would not. No, that, like, they didn't do it for Jesus. And he was preaching right. And I, I mean, come on. Okay? Now, what that means is, is that healings are what Jesus said they were. One, they were a sign of the kingdom. First, it's king. That King Jesus had the power to heal and bring the first fruits of the kingdom. But it's also, they are the first fruits and signs of what the kingdom brings, which is salvation, which is a healing. 
Okay? That's why they are a metaphor for salvation. If salvation was only legal, healings wouldn't be the great metaphor for it in the ministry of Jesus. Right? Jesus says, no, it's like this. I cure blindness. And then the Pharisees go, what are you saying? We're blind? See, they got it. He's like, yeah, I kind of am. But don't you see, I can heal you. I can heal you. Or he, or, he, or he heals somebody who's deaf. He's like, everybody who has ears to hear, let them hear. And they're like, are you saying we can't? We don't, we're all believe you. Listen, that's what, I didn't say, Isaiah said it. I'm ever speaking to these people and they're ever not listening. Their ears are shut up. Right? Or we feel like we just can't, we just can't turn to God. And God goes to somebody who's been lame, laying on a mat for 30 years. He says, stand up and walk. Do you want to get better? Do you want to get better? Stand up and walk then. And they do. And then he turns to us sinners and he says, do you want to get better? Do you want to get better? And you're like, I, I can't. I can't. I'm, listen, this is who I am. Oh yeah? So was he. That was who he was. And he stood up and walked. Do you want to get better? Because you can. But you see, you see, people can look at the New Testament and say, Nick, isn't there any psychological healing in the New Testament? Yes. Everything. Only everything. Only literally everything. Literally everything in the entire New Testament points towards salvation. What do you think salvation is? Salvation is the change of God through His Spirit, by His gospel, to make people capable of loving Him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is, their entire person is capable of doing the good and loving God. Which, what's necessary for that? Well, spiritual life, health in the mind, in the heart, and in the soul. And since we're such all neurology experts now about the brain, and the body or the strength. All of salvation points to psychological healing in the narrowest possible way of using that word, right? When Jesus says, um, <clears throat> if you give up the whole world, you'll, you'll gain your life. The Greek word for life is pasukse, from which we get pasukse logiko, right? The logic of the pasukse, or the life, right? The reason of what, how the inner self or life functions. That's what psychology literally etymologically means. And Jesus says, if you come to me, you'll lose your life, but you'll gain your life, your soul, your, your suksa, your self. Only everything in the New Testament is about psychological healing in the broadest possible sense, and therefore in the narrowest too. God is a God of healing, and you have to believe it. You have to believe it. Right? Jesus, the way Jesus said it in the Gospel of John over and over again is, I've come so that you could have life, abundant life, eternal life, 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 life. He's not big on the self, Jesus, because by the self he means the flesh, he means the false self. He means the self-betraying self. He's not big on that. He, that needs to die, he says. Why? So that you can have a real self and a life, right? So the second thing is that you have to, we have to believe in God's paths of healing, right? See, part of the disjunction here is people want to say, look, Nick, Jesus healed a person who was blind. Why can't, with all the personal problems that I have that I know I'm blind to, why can't I come up and somebody just pray for me and for Jesus just to reveal and heal them just on the spot? Why can't that happen? Right? Well, first of all, I, I wouldn't use the word can't, okay? I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm not here to tell you anything God can't do, okay? 
And I think God does reveal a lot to us in terms of psychological healing in prayer when done well. When we come to God in order to be honest with God, to receive God as God is, to invite him truly open to be changed by him, not holding on to our sins and our little idols, inviting him to show us what he wants to do, and then honestly responding to it, ready to repent and change if necessary, and to do things that scare us, I think that when people pray like that, he does enormous revelations, and sometimes um, healing happens pretty quick in certain ways. But one of the differences is that sanctification or receiving the fruits of salvation in our lives in the Bible is treated as a process. Right? As we go to the, the epistles and we read the apostles talk about salvation, that is the healing of salvation, which is what most of all the epistles are about, they speak of it as having punctuated moments of critical faith, but that grows through an ongoing process of obeying God and figuring out how to walk with the Spirit through all these things of life, so that on that path of healing, we continually grow. And so in order to believe God in his healing for us holistically, we actually have to be willing to trust God in how he does it, what his paths of healing are. Does that make sense? So let me make three quick points in this one point and the three points that I'm making. Just one from each of these um, three passages. Did you notice how these—the thing that unites these three passages in Luke's gospel is these are the three places where Luke says to somebody who he—or, I'm sorry, not Luke. Jesus says to somebody he heals, your faith has healed you. I'll get to why that is at the very end of this thrilling conclusion of this sermon, okay? But right now I want to say this. When this woman comes to him—now think about this. This woman—this isn't one of the strange miracles. Why is this a strange miracle? This is one of the people Jesus heals who doesn't look like they need it. Okay? She's been bleeding for, I think it's eight years, if I remember correctly, and she probably, like, is doing everything she can to look fine. But, remember, in the Bible, blood refers to—is is a metaphor for life. Okay? So for eight years, this woman's life has been draining out of her in the most humiliating way. This condition almost certainly has affected her fertility. So her life is draining out of her. She can't create the new life that she wishes to, and it makes her perpetually ceremonially unclean. So she can't have the intimacy relationally that she was made for, right? She's losing her life in three ways at least, okay? But she, and she comes to Jesus with faith and with—say it with me—dishonesty, okay? I get really tired—okay, listen. Maybe I'm sexist. I get really tired of preachers in order to curry favor with women, glorifying the female characters in the gospel in ways they shouldn't. Woman at the Well, John 4, is the best example, but here's one of them, right? Like, she's being—she's full of faith. She's doing something very noble, intimately, like all humans, is also being dishonest. She doesn't come to Jesus and ask to be healed. There are plenty of times—this isn't one of them—where Jesus doesn't have a bazillion people around. Like, the guy in the third passage gets Jesus' attention. He just yells, right? But no, she's like— she comes when there's a lot of people around him and goes to touch him and says, if I can just touch him, I'll be healed. Right? So she touches him. And then Jesus is like, who touched me? Which is her worst nightmare. Because she knows darn well she did this dishonestly. Right? She was right. And, and so finally, you know, and she doesn't fess up at first. She tries to let it go, right? And then Jesus is like, and Peter's like, Master, look, there's, there's so many people here. Like, I mean, everybody touched you. He's like, no, no, no. No, no, no power went out of me. Like, somebody touched me on purpose. 
And so she comes forward, and it says she comes forward, what? Trembling. So really, I can't think of another New Testament character in which Jesus heals them, and the result is terror. Like, most people are happy, right? But she's terrified because she didn't just get a healing, right? And so Jesus calls her forth, and she's terrified, and she's like, what happened? And she's like, and then she confesses. She's like, well, I'm in for it now. And so she just says it all. I was bleeding, and this happened, and then I came, I touched you, and I, I thought this, and I just didn't want to come forward, and like, I'm unclean now. You're unclean, and like, I don't know what to tell you. And he's like, and he looks around, and everybody's like, what's he going to do? Right? And, Jesus, and then Jesus flips from severity to daughter. Right? Daughter, your faith has healed you. Right? I was going to heal you all. I, listen, I, I want nothing better than to heal you. But you've got to be honest. You've got to be honest with me, with yourself, or this healing won't help you. Won't help you. Your faith has led you to be healed. And there's a great—he's insinuating there's a greater healing. Like, your faith can take you beyond this. Like, I care about you personally, right? She would have gone away. Think about this. She would have touched Jesus, believing he didn't care enough, but that he—she got a piece of his magic, so to speak, right? Like, somehow the power came to her, but not the person, right? Jesus is like, no, that's bull. I'm not doing that, right? He's like, who touched me? Why? Because he wants to make this interaction personal because he has more to give her. She has to believe not just in his power, but in himself, in his healing, in his salvation power, that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. So she can be saved, so she can be totally healed of all the hurt from the last eight years, of all the alienation, of all the loss of fertility, of everything she might be mad at God about or mad at herself or mad at life in general about, that she can be healed totally. Because that's what, he's, that's what he's come for, right? And you see, part of coming to God as he is for his healing is to embrace both his severity and his kindness. Like there's this verse in Romans where, where Paul says, behold the severity and the kindness of God, right? John says, we have seen God's glory, the glory of his one and only who came in grace and truth. You gotta come to God that way. If you just want, you just want kind God, you can't heal. If you just want truthful God, you won't heal. You'll give up because you'll feel terrible all the time. You, you have to have, you have to receive God as he is, right? The second thing is, is that you have to receive the madness of his command, right? Um, and the second one, the lepers yelled at Jesus, hey, Jesus, have mercy on us, right? Heal us. And he goes, go to the priests and show yourself to them. Okay, do you realize that's nuts? Like, think about that. When in, do you know when in the Old Testament of the Bible it says you're supposed to show yourself to the priests? There's only one time in a skin disease. It's when you're healed. <laughs> when you're already better. So think about how insulting that is. They're, they're dying of leprosy. Jesus goes, go and show yourself to the priests. Just keeps walking in the village where they, they're not allowed to go because they're ceremonially unclean, right? And I mean, I, I kind of wish Luke could have recorded the conversation between the ten of them. You know? Like, go show ourselves to the priests? I don't think the priests want—we can't even go in the village. Like, are you kidding? We're supposed to—does he not know we're supposed to go after he heals us? I think he just made a mistake. He's just been talking to too many people. Like, I mean, and then—but, like, somehow they decide to go, right? And so they go, and as they go to do this thing that they literally can't do, right? They can't get access to the priests because they're ceremonially unclean. Jesus has literally asked them to do something they cannot do. And yet, as they go, they become clean, and then they can talk to the priests, right? And then one of them goes, Oh my gosh! And he runs back to find Jesus and throws himself at his feet and worships him, right? And Jesus says, isn't this sad that the Samaritan, the one who theologically understands this the worst on the basis of their culture, you would think, this foreigner, 
I mean, he means religious foreigner, is the only one to come back to praise God. It's like the less you know, the better you do. Right? One of the things that um, I think people struggle with is that one of the differences between spirituality, Christian spirituality, and direct psychological therapy is all, virtually nothing in Christian spirituality is intended to directly lead to the healing you want. Okay? When you go to a counselor, you say, counselor, I have this issue, or they diagnose you with a particular issue, and you work on that issue until you can say you don't have that issue anymore at a clinical level, and then you're better, right? Which is a perfectly good pursuit, okay? That is literally the opposite of the way God heals people, okay? God tells you to do something you can't do, to go in the opposite direction of what you want, in a way that seems like you're being sent away from him. And in that process, by trusting him, and he forces you to do something you don't want to do, in that, he heals you. So when God says, listen, I know you feel personally worthless, go and apologize to that person who you have a, like a feud with and confess how you've treated them in a way that's really humble and ask for their forgiveness and see if you can reconcile the relationship. Right? And you're like, that's not what I asked for. Right? And, and the Spirit will whisper, you know, but that's what you're going to do. Because see, until, until you're open, you get the severity of God, right? And so he goes, no, you're going to do it. That's what you're going to do. You're going to obey. And so you go, okay. And then you go, and you do it, and you either find out that you're strong enough to do it when you didn't think you were, or that God had made you good enough to do it, that you were more willing to do what was right than what was expedient. And maybe you're not worthless because you're willing to do the good. But maybe if you're, you were created to do the good and you're willing to do the good, maybe you— Maybe you can do. Maybe you can be a son or daughter of God. Maybe that's possible. Maybe God can help you do it. Or the person might forgive you and embrace you and show how much you matter to them and how much they were waiting for this reconciliation, how much they wanted it. Showing how worthwhile you are. Speaking to your soul in the place where you felt like you were completely worthless. Like God almost always indirectly does the things we want because the things we want are usually like worldly. They're, we just want comfort. We want to feel better. And God's like, no, no, no. I'm going to make you into my likeness. My goal, God's goal is not just to heal you, it's to glorify you. And so he's never just trying to make you feel better. He's, God, God just isn't that foolish. He's not that pedestrian. He's not that short-sighted. He's not that silly, you know? And so he, he says, all right, you want to be healed? Okay, Why don't, try praying to me with a level of honesty you've never had with anybody. Let's try with prayer. Or actually confess and repent of what you know is wrong in your life and see what happens. Or go to that person and seek reconciliation. Or contemplate, like, like, put your phone away, put your stuff away, put away all the stuff you're racing to do to make sure you don't get left behind, and let yourself get left behind. Become a dinosaur in your own generation and sit with the truth of God and contemplate on it. Unrushed, unhurried, open, honest. See what happens. Be a real friend to somebody. Attempt to love people. And in the midst of these things that don't seem like therapies, turns out they're physical therapies, so to speak, of the heart. And they bring healing when you do the activity. And what you find is, is that they're done for their own good, for the glory of God, to heal the destruction of the curse, and to remake you in his image, to empower you in the likeness of God, and to make you feel better. Like, aren't you glad? And the last is, see the opportunity 
when everybody else sees something that's ordinary, right? So this, this blind beggar is sitting there, and there's people going by. He's like, there's other people going by. Maybe I'm going to make, make some cash, right? That's what beggars want is foot traffic, right? And so he's like, well, who, what's, what's happening, right? And, you know, you, you're probably hoping for something like, well, the king's going by. He's like, oh, rich people. This is going to be fantastic. And he finds out Jesus of Nazareth is going by. And he's like, you know, you'd think they'd be like, oh, shit, right? But he's like, oh, wait, I've heard of this guy. But see, here's the thing. But see what they—notice the—here's here's the thing that's parable that's interesting. They call him Jesus of Nazareth. What does the beggar call him? Jesus, the son of David. This is the king. He knows it somehow. And he goes, he goes, and he starts yelling. Jesus, so you see what's happening here? Everybody else thinks it's Thursday. You understand? They think it's Thursday. He says, yeah, Jesus of Nazareth is walking through. It's Jericho, you know? Here we are. It's, it's the city of Palms, you know? Um, I wonder how the soccer team's doing. But, but like this guy recognizes that this is a cataclysmic, like changing moment, even though for everybody else, it's a dusty, like day of the week, Jesus is walking through, right? They're following him. Who knows? Maybe we'll do something interesting. This guy starts yelling, Jesus, have mercy on me. So Jesus brings him forward. He says, what do you want? He's like, I want to be healed, right? I, one of the things that we need to recognize is that um, so many people in the glitziness of modernity despise actual things God tells us to do to grow in him because they just don't see fails him cool enough. They seem old. They, they seem like antiquated. They seem like, like, you know, a time long past. Fasting, like don't eat on purpose. Okay, listen, it wasn't because people had too much food in the ancient world. Okay? Or prayer. Like people are like, well, I, you know, I do mindfulness meditation. That's what I do. It's just like, it's a better technology, you know? No, it isn't. No, it isn't. You don't have to be honest with a divine being to do mindfulness meditation. Okay? You can get every benefit of mindfulness meditation. The reason people do mindfulness meditation is they don't want to be theological. They don't want any doctrine. They don't want to stand and sit before the living God. It's terrifying. So it's better to just sit before yourself. Know yourself. Know what's going on in you. Listen, that's great. That's better than non-mindfulness and no meditation. Okay? Like, I'm not against Buddhist spiritual technologies except for when they purport to claim to be superior to the simple yet profound dynamics of the actual acts of God and the things he calls us to do, like prayer. Okay? I'm just—I am sick and tired of my own lack of faith <coughs> relative to prayer, much less all of us. We just don't—it's like 170 different ways you can pray. They're all better than nothing. I mean— the only kind of prayer that's probably worse is openly legalistic pharisaical prayer. I'm so glad I'm better than Andrew Knox, you know? <laughs> or like, they laugh because it's true. I don't see. Um, or like, clearly idolatrous prayer, where you are praying to a God that is not there and confirming your assumptions about that God who isn't there. Basically, any other way you pray is better. If you are speaking in tongues, and you think you're speaking in tongues, and you're not even speaking in tongues, okay? If you don't have the gift of speaking in tongues, and you are making nonsensible syllables toward God because you care about Him, and you want to move in your life, that is better than not praying. You understand? I'm sick of non-charismatic evangelicals picking on people who are speaking in tongues, and they seem to be doing it falsely. I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. It's not demonic if they are saying stuff to God and they think it's a spiritual gift, and it's not. I'd rather they do it than nothing. He'd rather I did it than nothing. 
Okay? Now, it's better to be able to discern the, the gift of speaking in tongues and to participate if you've received it. Yes. But listen, almost anything God gives us to do, he expects us to do badly. You confess your sins, but badly. Right? We fast for a couple of minutes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fast for my phone for an hour. You know, he's like, you're fantastic. You know, like, whoa. Right? But you see, it still matters. Like, anything that we do could lead to the next thing that we do in faith, which could lead to a relationship of faith, to God moving and doing great things. Right? Okay, so don't despise what seems ordinary. Maybe it's just plain, but it's amazing. Right? My hiking boots are my plainest shoes, and they've taken me to the most amazing places I've ever been in my life. Okay? The third is, Stewardship, stewardship aids, not replaces, the spiritual paths of healing. Why, do, why am I saying this? Because part of healing is all the things we're doing in our jobs. Right? Like, why are you doing the thing you're doing? It's hopefully to help other people in their lives. Right? That's why we have medicine and psychology and economics and public policy and sanitation and carpentry and all these things are for human flourishing, which includes human healing. So all the things that we do that don't seem like religious are our stewardship. And what we need to focus on is we need to devote these to God, not presume that they replace God. This is the danger in all of our fields. I'm going to pick on psychology right now, um, probably because it's one I really like. Um, this is a quote from me, by the way, if you wonder why it's unattributed. But I was talking with somebody this week, and we were talking on the phone, and then I said this, and I thought it was helpful. Modern psychology has come to say some very basic human things in very sophisticated and complicated ways. Meanwhile, Scripture speaks of very sophisticated and complex paths of healing, human healing, in very simple and common ways. Both are very useful, but it is the worst kind of tragedy to abandon the latter, thinking that the former is a replacement rather than a bridesmaid. Okay? So many people, young people, and not just young people, believe that it would be right to abandon Christian faith for essentially the technologies of psychology, because they're like, basically, that's all faith ever was. I mean, if you listen to people like Sam Harris or even Jordan Peterson sometimes, it, they make it sound like, you see, we figured out the psychological technologies that were actually in all this religious crap. Now we can get rid of all the religious junk and just have like our transcendental meditations and our understanding of like, like human mythological meaning in terms of things. And if we understand that, that's really the heart of it. It's not the heart of it. There is a mythological meaning to Jesus rising from the dead. But the important thing is that Jesus, literally in the body, by himself, through the power of God, vindicated by the Lord, in the power of the Spirit, rose from the dead. Okay? Like, listen, I was a camp counselor at a camp for like five or six years. When I went back ten years later, my legend or myth still remained. Because I was there! Like, I made the myth. Like, the myth and the man were both true. Right? I'm all for mythology. It's an important way of understanding the world. But like, sometimes it's because it like literally happened. I literally set that cabin on fire, you know? <laughs> and so that didn't happen. So uh, one way to think about this is that godliness, the pursuit of godliness and the ways God calls us to in faith are the ways in which he brings us to healing and glorification. All of the ways the likeness of God in us is utilized in all of the fields that we study and work through should be, one, informed by godliness, 
but also an expression towards the support of godliness, right? So like all of these, are, I gave the like, she, she, she looks like really happy for her, right? It's like, so I made her psychology. It's like, that's what psychology, like, right? There's two ways to look at psychology, right? You can look at psychology as a clinical help to places where people are struggling to find how they can be healed or as a replacement for the spirituality of God, right? Psychology can, especially when done by people who understand the spirituality of God, can be a great help to people clinically, but it can only be a bridesmaid to human healing. It can never be its primary means without it becoming idolatrous because it can't have the right spiritual or moral views or other things like that built into it structurally. So it supports what God is doing in the healing of humanity, which is through his Christ and by his spirit, by his healing paths, supported by all of our vocations, gifts, and skills that we're living through all the places that we live. Okay. Let me end with this. Why does Jesus say your faith has healed you? Right? It's created a lot of problems. Right? There's, there's been faith healers who have basically said, you see, that's the key. If you believe you're going to be healed, you'll be healed. Right? Thankfully, a lot of people have gotten away from that. But what does it mean? Why does he say it? He doesn't, he doesn't mean nothing by it. I mean, this is the, this is the Christ who in John's gospel says to the, to the Father, I have come to glorify you. You've glorified me, and I'm glorifying you. Everything Jesus did was to bring glory to God so he heals somebody. And instead, instead of saying, listen, God is a glorious person who has compassion on his people, and in his grace and generosity has healed you. Like, he blows it. He completely blows the opportunity. He's like, your faith has healed you. What a man-centered religion, right? Your faith has healed you, right? But what, what does he say? Has, was it their faith that healed them? No, right? Jesus healed them. But what got him in the room? Understand? What got him in the room? You see, you know what I'm saying? Like, you, you got to get to the place where the thing happens. And if you don't, it doesn't happen. You understand? If God wishes to work through his ordinary means of, let's say, corporate prayer, you got to let somebody pray for you. Or it doesn't happen. If you're being dishonest with yourself and God wants to show you in honest prayer— and you don't pray, honestly, doesn't happen. If God wants to give you triumph over the addiction you have, like in your sensation and your sensuality towards your phone and your food and your stuff, and you won't fast, doesn't happen. God stands ready to act according to his truth and by his spirit. But you and I have to have enough faith to get in the room, to get in the place, to put our hands out, to open our hearts to be willing. And you see, it's really hard because most people are willing to give, get rid of or put before them their cerebral palsy or their blindness. But do you really see your sin and self-dishonesty as a sickness? Do you really want to be healed? You see, that these three people, they wanted to be healed. They knew what they had was a sickness. They knew it was killing them, and they wanted to be healed. They knew it. The issue with the human race is we don't. Not for our sin. We don't know it. But you have to know it. You have to know you want to be healed. And you have to turn to Jesus and ask him to heal you. 
believe in his healing, that that's the whole point of everything, and in his paths of healing. And never think that anything we can do through our God-given abilities and his likeness can ever replace it. And if you do, and if you come to him, he says, when you seek me with all your heart, you will find me. He who hungers and thirsts for righteousness will be filled. If somebody asks his father, if a a child asks his father for the Holy Spirit, for something good, he doesn't get a snake instead of an egg. He gets a good gift, and you guys are evil, and you do that with your kids. What do you think your Heavenly Father does when you ask for the Holy Spirit? The problem is if you ask for the Holy Spirit, this is a big problem, you will have him. So, set the living room, because he's coming, and he drinks multiple cups of tea because he has a lot to say. (laughs) Friends, I want you to— Band, you can come up. Um, I want you to realize that God's paths of healings, they're not hidden. They're just hard. They're just hard. They're straightforward. They're actually fairly simple. God has revealed them very directly, showing them in the life of Jesus, and then explicitly telling us through his apostles. He's done it in various ways, in all, at all kinds of different times. He has created a gathering of the church for us to come together and talk about it. And we still, we still struggle with really wanting to walk the paths of healing, to believe that God will heal us. And we think wrongly that there's other ways to get what we want. And there is it. So I want to encourage you now, um, we're not going to have any AMA today because I think asking questions is an inappropriate way to respond to these truths. So we're going to sing, we're going to have a little time of reflection. Um, and then I want to invite you, I want to invite you if you want to come to the thing um, after church, Oaks, um, at one, I really encourage you to. Um, part of the reason, let me just say like one more 30 seconds on this. Oaks is a ministry where we neither want to reject the good of psychology and, and how it can help us, nor pretend it's the gospel, right? Churches have really struggled to either to integrate psychology without making psychology their new god. And so we have a number of people who've been like working really hard to try to do that well so that we can, we can do something that is truly spiritually healing in this age of an incredible increase in what pe- we call mental illness, but really way more people than people who have clinical mental illnesses are suffering profoundly in heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we want to use the tools that God has given us, his spiritual technologies in the loving body of his church, informed with helpful things from psychological sciences, to do the most good that we can in the culture in which we exist. Does that make sense? And so I'm really excited about this ministry. You'll hear more about it. This is a training mostly directed at leaders and small group leaders and stuff like that, but it's open to everybody. And I hope you'll think about coming. But let's, let's start with trying to respond ourselves. God, the, one of the hardest things for us is honesty, truthfulness towards you, wanting what you have for us entirely with one heart, with a purity of heart. The other thing we hunger and thirst for is righteousness, your righteousness, that we want to be seen as peacemakers rather than people who are right. There's so many ways in which um, your paths look hard. And I pray that right now you would encourage us that if we will come to you 
and accept the paths you'll take us on. We can trust you, and you will really do something new in us. Some of us have been stuck in our faith for years, and it's because we're not healed. We won't be healed, and, and we have to give up that and receive something new. And I pray that right now, Holy Spirit, you'd be coming and doing that in us, and that each of us would have an, an individual reaction with you and your responsiveness to us. Pray that you'd help us to really turn to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we sing, I want